0: Oh, dear Lord God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the good news that you extend to each one of us um, through him. And we ask that now, even through this unexpected medium, through this film, um, and through film in general and the things that make us laugh, we ask that you would show us even more truth about your son and about the great depths of your love for us in him. So all of this we ask for your glory and for our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Good morning. Well, um, I'm going to start out. You might you might think what is Deborah doing? Why is she, why are we why is she doing the gospel according to romantic comedy and what could there be to even say about this issue? And what it well, we're going to start out. We're going to look at what is comedy and how is it different from tragedy? Um, what does the genre of romantic comedy as film do for us as human beings? And how can it in some ways be a vehicle for us in grasping the gospel in deeper ways? And then we're going to look at one specific example of this in Bridget Jones' diary, which is a movie that is more, uh, much better situated, in my opinion, theologically to reach us than some others. So, the um, two sides of tragedy and comedy, um, you know, classically, you think of them, they all go back to classic film and, or, excuse me, classic theater, and thinking about, you know, what what was it philosophically that informed the greats when they were writing um, the classics of um, Greek drama? What, what were they looking at doing? What was their primary purpose? Um, and so, certainly, there are things that, well, that was entertainment then, you know, you went to the amphitheater and you saw a Greek drama enacted. Um, and it was certainly a, a, an art form. Um, but there are different things that tragedy does versus comedy. So, um, But both, I would say, accomplish a kind of emotional catharsis. Um, tragedy is, um, you know, we think of the tragic greats from Greek drama, and you think of Oedipus Rex, you think of um, the Shakespearean tragedies, which I'm personally more familiar with, so Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet. Um, and then you think also of the comedies. Anybody want to name a comedy for me from the classics? This is team teach time. All anyway, right. Well, there um,
1: were sh- several,
0: several Shakespeare uh, ones. Several Shakespeare ones, yeah. Can you think of a couple of those? There was
1: Midsummer Night's Dream.
0: Mid-Summer Night's Dream is a great one with the donkey's head and the... As
1: you like it.
0: As You Like It, Twelfth Night, I think, constitutes a comedy officially. um, Love's Labor's Lost. Um, Shakespeare had these comedies. And then the the ancient comedies, does anybody remember some of the ancient comedies? Aristophanes, I believe, was one of the comedic writers. You know, there were lots of... Anyway, the differences between the genres, so they both accomplish this emotional catharsis. What is catharsis? Well, um, it's defined as, in a couple of different ways, it's a purification or a purgation of the emotions through art. And it brings about relief and release of tension. Um, so, uh, and one of the ways that it does this is it's the elimination of some negative emotions by bringing them to our consciousness in a non-threatening way, and then it gets an expression, and we can get it out. We see someone else experiencing something that um, we perhaps have experienced in some level, and we see it projected onto the big screen, literally, and um, we find some kind of emotional release through acknowledging it and talking about it or having it talked about in our presence, when it's usually something that would be um, pressed down, something that we wouldn't talk about publicly or socially, it comes out, we see it, they, experiencing it, they experience it usually in a, an extreme way, and that extremity of expression allows us to deal with um, our own negative emotions or negative feelings, uh, which are perhaps in moderation in some level compared to that. Um, so there's that catharsis. It brings it out and it um, expunges it. it. It purifies us and gets gets out the negative and allows us to see it for what it is and be released from it. Um, so there is not an amazing and a huge um, thing that art can do for us. So tragedy tends to um, look for those, um, classically Aristotle said that tragedy brings forward pity and fear. You know, there's that. um, I think of it especially in Romeo and Juliet, which is probably the one I know back and forth so well. And you think of those star-crossed young lovers um, and you know, you know, you almost fear what's going to happen. You, You know that all's not well. You fear it. And then it does happen. The worst happens and you're crushed. We're crushed when we see that happen. Um, And yet there's a beauty in their nobility, Um, their tragic flaws are apparent. You see them and um, through um, pitying them, feeling, empathizing with them, and then having our worst fears, our worst nightmares projected onto the screen or onto a play in other characters, um, in other people, in the characters on stage, we find freedom and release from that. That fear, that worst fear is acknowledged and um, and played out, ex- literally played out. Um, so the difference between that, so tragedy uh, involves, Aristotle says this, pity and fear come forward. And in comedy, what comes forward, well, first of all, the other thing about tragedy is tragedy usually has these superior characters. The characters are these great heroes and heroines, people that we look up to and idolize or idealize and say, Wow, aren't they amazing? Aren't they beautiful? Aren't they noble? What a noble king, what um, a noble young woman. And then, um, so we want to be like them, and so then seeing these negative things happen to them, it helps with the catharsis. Well, in comedy, what you see is that the characters are, um, we see them as being... uh, And this is on an aristocratic level in terms of class, social class. In comedy, we see them as being lesser or inferior. So you'll see this in a lot of comedies that um, their foibles and their flaws are right out there. And sometimes they're out there to such an extreme that it becomes ridiculous. And we see things that we might ourselves do in moderation or that we know are silly or destructive or not helpful and yet we see them on the big screen in these characters um, and the characters are doing them outrageously and that is cathartic for us because it allows us to see those ridiculous parts of ourselves, our human weaknesses and flaws and when we see them um, and we see them done to the extreme and the consequences played out there there is an emotional release and that's why we start laughing. And that's the emotional release that you see in comedy, is that laughter, that laughter that comes out very often. It's social. Have you ever noticed this, that when you go to see a funny movie in the movie theater, you'll see that um, everybody's laughing, and you're drawn into the laughter. You'll laugh more than you would if you were watching it at home alone. I've discovered this, that the films that I find or the shows that I find truly funny are the ones that I laugh at all by myself. Um, <laughs> those perhaps are also the most telling ones because those I'm laughing at myself when I laugh at them. Um, and so that's, that's one of those healthy, wonderful things. Our relief uh, comes from seeing these, these foibles projected on the big screen. It, our guard is let down. We laugh. And it allows us to look with honesty, even in some level, at ourselves to see the areas where we might be like that character that we see on the screen. So um, with that in mind, um, any questions about that before we look just at romantic comedy and some specifics about romantic comedy and comedic structure itself versus tragedy? Any ideas about that catharsis, that release of tension, and why that's a good thing for us? Any ideas? What does that do for us? Helps us take ourselves less seriously, right? Helps ourselves come to grips with things in our lives that we might be in denial about. It's a psychological thing. If we're able to laugh at someone else doing something that we do all the time, we can then say, oh, huh, I do do that. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> Anyone want to say anything? You don't have to. Good. Well, why romantic comedy? Why romantic comedy, Deborah? Um, Richard Curtis is the screenwriter for Bridget Jones Diary, and he wrote the screenplay. You know, Helen the Bridget Jones Diary is based on Helen Fielding's novel, and Richard Curtis wrote the screenplay, but he's also written and directed several other romantic comedies. He he did not direct Bridget Jones' Diary, but he is the writer-director of Love Actually and Four Weddings and a Funeral, um, several others um and what he oh notting hill i believe also is his he was once asked why he writes the kind of films that he writes well why why how did you get into romantic comedy why do you do this and he said that he would much rather write stories about people falling in love because people fall in love every day uh, then write movies with dark themes about serial killers or, um, you know, it, law dramas, that happens every day too, but um, other <laughs> things like <laughs> the darker side of life because, um, because this wonderful bright side of life does, really does happen every day and he wanted to shed light on that and provide, continue to provide a form for good romantic comedies. Um, any questions about that? had that idea of romantic comedy bringing out the lighter things in life, and the idea that um, every day people fall in love, and uh, every day we see a little bright spot, or there's a bright spot somewhere where someone is falling in love, uh, even if it's not us. Well, why? what does romantic love have to do with God's love? Um, well, there is a sense in which the the romantic love that we see on the big screen is it the same as God's love? No, but is it analogous? Yes, and we'll see that particularly in Bridget Jones' diary that the way that um, love or like is expressed is very similar to the way that God expresses his own love for us. And um, within that um, unconditional nature of love, is human love ever unconditional? That's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) We all know that. And yet we see it in in romantic comedies. We tell ourselves that it is um, when we talk about it in film. We tell ourselves that it is because there's the hope in us that somewhere it is. Somewhere unconditional love exists. And little girls everywhere think about that when they think of Disney princesses and the love stories projected on the big screen for them in in cartoon form, right? They want Prince Charming to be real. They want there to be the real ideal that is actually um, a person who is going to profess his unconditional love for them. And that is something, you know, it's hard. It might be hard for men to see this, but um, that is something that is true for every single person. Um, You know not thinking about the gender relationship but seeing for every single human being there is that desire within the depths of our hearts to be unconditionally loved by someone wonderful by someone completely perfect and yet totally real and isn't that often where in our very real human relationships we see conflict entering in with the other person's imperfections the reality of the other person who is not perfect yet hopefully still does love us despite our imperfections
2: Deborah um, you know when you watch the old screwball romantic comedies from the 30s and 40s with Cary grant gene arthur etc yeah. etc et
0: what's that Irene Dunn oh yes. Dunn. yes yes, yes. Well, good
2: well I mean from there up to Bridget Jones's diary in the present I mean I think the theme that you see if you want to look at it from a, from a Christian point of view mm-hmm. is the desire for salvation
0: yeah, the need, so, yeah. The,
2: the, the little girl's heart that you described is longing right. for
0: something. Right.
2: And so to me, it's always been, it's longing for that, for that set of circumstances that, that gets them out of the condition that they're in. So,
0: it is absolutely that. I would agree. And I would actually say that it's um, the unconditional love that gets them out of that circumstance. And the unconditional love is something totally outside of us. And that's what God extends to us in Jesus, right? Is that um, just you are loved no matter what you've done because Jesus has died for you. But and that's completely the, outside us.
2: Of the romantic comedy is the sin that's going on that causes the conflict which is redeemed in the end. Yeah, That's, that's the appeal, I think, of the whole yeah.
0: genre. Definitely, I would agree. And you'll see that in this film today, definitely. I'm not, I will confess I'm not as familiar with the... 30s um, romantic comedies, if they were musical, I saw them. If there was dancing, I definitely saw them. But, um, they're
2: well worth watching.
0: I would agree. You'll have to give me some titles when we're done. Or the, all of us some titles, actually. Bringing Up Baby is a great one. Oh, that's a really good one, actually. I've seen that with Katharine Hepburn. The Awful, Hepburn. Truth. The the awful, awful truth. truth. Is there one, too? What's the one with them? Philadelphia with Story? Philadelphia Story is so great. I'll take it with you as another Yes. Yeah. Philadelphia Story then went to High Society, which is the um, Grace
2: Kelly.
0: Yeah, Grace Kelly, and that's a fabulous one. too a fabulous music for musical version of Philadelphia story. So the the reason why it's we love these films because they're true. There's something true about them. You're absolutely right. Thank you. Yeah. And don't uh,
1: the the Disney thing. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Like, do you want Ruined it for me. For oh me. no. A second. No, please go for it. <laughs> you know, don't. You know, I'm I'm asking, you know, don't you said everyone yearns for this unconditional love. So, are we to assume that, you know, society has sort of put the a, a, a kibosh on men expressing that? I don't, You know, of course, we liked You're each other You're not speaking
2: from experience. You're just, you've you heard about <laughs> other well, people. Well, you know, we wouldn't <laughs>
1: tell each other we liked each other for like seven years. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: a great screw-up <laughs> have been.
1: But, it, I mean, and, and we see that, we kind of maybe see that in in old, the church of old, I guess, well, not old, but when the church I grew up in where there were more women than men. Yep. And, and I guess. Mother's Day, it's packed. There's nobody here today. I know. Yeah. I
0: Exactly. <laughs> I'm so impressed. That it's like almost 50-50 in this class right now. I think that's like incredible. Yep. Sorry.
1: Well, I, I was just saying that we we all yearn for that. And, mm-hmm. you know, to an extent society said, well, men are s- stronger. You know, I guess t- traditionally men are stronger, and then women, women are weaker. So it's easier for the weaker sex to admit that they need this unconditional love than the men. But we both, we all need it. As you I would
0: agree. We all need it, and I think it is. I would agree entirely. I do think our society kind of reinforces things that aren't helpful, just in terms of well, I'm. I'm a man. I can't feel that way. It's not even something consciously said. Or I'm a woman. I can't feel that way. Or shouldn't. And I would agree that that, that idea of vulnerability is something that women are encouraged to have. Women are encouraged to be vulnerable, and, and men are not always encouraged to be invul- vulnerable in society and in relationships. In, um, and so in some ways, I, I feel I wish that weren't the case. And I love seeing it when it's not the case. Because it takes courage um, to kind of counteract that, doesn't it? Yeah. Any other thoughts before we look at some structure? You're thinking, just show the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there a formula? That be- well, there isn't a, well, there probably is a formula. I don't know it because I'm not, I'm not really a filmmaker. We do have a filmmaker in our midst, and she might know it but, um
2: Well, the theological formula is the cycle of redemption. Yes, you
0: know, which absolutely.
2: It starts with uh, sin and then moves through
0: through the admission of sin, and then... Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to look at that right now, actually. We're going to look at, well, what's the structure of tragedy? You know, all, all plots, and you see this in um, literature as well as in drama, you know, there's this initial start, and then it builds up, the conflict builds, this is sort of the structure of the conflict, and then the conflict is resolved. And then there's a denouement or a release and a quick resolution of the loose ends in the storyline. Does everybody know about this plot structure? Are you, can you d- drum it up from 11th grade English in your mind somewhere? So this is a um, structure of conflict. You won't be able to read this. But um, it could be said, too, then, that for, for tragedy, from the point of view of um of the main character or the the outcome kind of as far as well-being you'd see in um, tragedy things start out kind of like status quo right Um, then it might be that some positive things appear and we see this this is like Romeo and Juliet Um, you can see this remember Romeo has just had this love lady love and didn't really you know then he meets Juliet and it gets even better and they're in love and um, this horrible thing happens, but they're still in love, and they're going to get married, and then, um, and then of course there's that um, star-crossed moment where they both end up dying, and it plummets. I mean, well, I mean that's that's it just goes way down, and it goes way down really quickly from where it started, right? It just, and so in some ways you could say, I'm a little bit. I always loved geometry. In some ways you could say it's sort of like an inverted parabola, right? Like a U shaped Yeah. A U shaped um plot structure in terms of their well being, what's going to happen to them. Well with comedy what you'll see is that it's in fact the other way. It starts like this, things are going well and then or decently, it's decent, and then they start to go um bad and they get worse and they get worse and they get worse and then you get down to the worst point possible. It can't get any worse than this. And then from there, once it gets as bad as it could possibly ever, ever, ever be, suddenly something happens and things change and things turn for the good uh, and suddenly things start going much, much, much better. I think that's so cute because then you look, it's a smile. (laughs) I'm so cheesy, Deborah. (laughs) It's totally cheesy. But so, and what I love about this is if it's a parabola, um, let's see, let me just put comedy. If it's a parabola, again, with math, a parabola is like a line, so there's only one point in a row in a line. So there really is one, only one lowest point, and from there it can't get any lower than that. From there, it starts to go up. Things start to look up. Well, when you look at all four Gospels, and I did a little bit of this when I worked on my thesis for seminary, which I looked, I did on the Gospel of John. When you look at the narrative structure of the four Gospels, and you might say, well, Deborah, why, do, why are we talking about the Gospels literature, isn't it? it's also history, it's historical fact, which is true, it's an eyewitness account, and yet also in any narrative you're gonna find that there's a structure going on. And so different, um, there's a trend within biblical um, exegesis and biblical study to look at the four Gospels and say, well, w- forget about where did this manuscript come from and th- we're gonna look at the text as we have it and we're gonna try to understand what is the structure, within the text as we have it? What are the goals? What are the points of view? Um, what it, you know, with this, as we have it, what can we learn as we study it and um, analyze it? And so what you'll find is that they've used, um, some biblical scholars have used literary tools, tools that we use for um, studying Shakespeare, or then, st- you know, drama, or then also the greats of English literature. And looking at scripture, they use these same tools and say, well, what's going on in these gospels? What is the structure of these gospels? And so what's so interesting is that for those biblical scholars, and yes, there are some, who do not believe in um, the resurrection, they look at the story of Jesus, the true story of Jesus in the Gospels, and they say, it starts out here status quo, things are going great, his ministry is awesome, people are getting healed, he's teaching, people are following him, then it hits the road bump, and then it goes really bad, because he he goes to a cross, and he dies, but that's because they don't believe in the resurrection, and so they look at the Gospels, and they say, oh, Jesus is the tragic hero, it's a tragedy how terribly sad, how depressing it's meant to elicit these emotions of um, pity and fear, to bring out this cathartic um, release of sorrow, of angst, Um, those might be released as well. But for those of us who believe in the actual resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the also um, meaning of the cross for us as believers in Jesus, what we'll find is that then Jesus' story um, goes in a U-shape, like this. It, um, and I'm going to just read um, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, where Paul is talking to the Philippians, and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. This is where the arrow goes down. Emptied himself. Um, Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, the incarnation, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the low point in in the parabola. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is raised from the dead. His story took a dramatic upswing. He did not just die on a cross and die. But he rose from the dead and in rising, um, then also this cross means that his death is for us. So that while this is the shape of Jesus' story, ours, through faith in Jesus, is just like it. It takes on the same shape. That our story begins um, as human beings in Eden. I'm going to write minusculely. You'll never be able to see that. In Eden, where we were in fellowship with God, where Adam and Eve walked with God, God walked with them, they could have direct access to him. And they fell into sin, and they fell. And sin entered the world, entered their hearts, entered the relationship between Adam and Eve, um, and um, entered the world, you see it, with their sons where there's even murder. One son murders the other. It gets worse and worse. You see the effects of sin in the world um, around them, in society, in the structures um, of society. And we see it even today, don't we? We see sin all around us and the way that um, corruption corrupts absolutely. And yet for us who believe in Jesus, there is hope because as bad as it gets, And we know this, that as bad as it is for us, as in our worst moments, whether it's because of something someone else has done to us or something we ourselves have done, and we look at it and we say, I can't fix this. There's nothing I can do to make this better. I have done this, and there's no way out. Who will save me from this body of death, as St. Paul says in Romans 7? And there we have the cross, that as we look to Jesus, our lowest point is in fact Um, the moment when everything is flipped for us because our story is his story and as we um, believe in him and look to Jesus in faith our sins are forgiven the things we've done the things we've said the things we've thought um, there is hope for the broken relationships around us for the conflict we see in our world Mm -hmm. for the conflict in society and even the corruption in structures and at that point the truth is that we will be raised with Jesus We will live with him. So at the top of this other end of the parabola, there is the new Jerusalem, which we see in Revelation 21, where all those who um, believe in him will live eternally with God. And there will be no sorrow, no tears, no sighing, no dying. And our story ends up like that. Um, This is where faith comes in, because it doesn't feel like that now, does it? We don't always get to see that. And so our life might be like this, all sorts of dots. And faith is believing that through Jesus, God has turned his no to us into a divine yes. That yes, he loves us. Yes, he forgives us. Yes, he is striving and working in our midst uh, to deliver us and to deliver our world. And so faith comes in over here in our lives as we believe that all appearances to the contrary God is actually redeeming us um, at, through faith in Jesus Christ. So, any questions about that before we start to look at Bridget Jones? Okay. I love diagramming. I love <laughs> geometry. <laughs> I, could, I would walk around with a, a one of one of those dry erase boards if I could. So, um, Bridget Jones' diary is based on Helen Fielding's novel, the same name, we talked about it, followed by the not as good sequel, The Edge of Reason, and the third book again released this fall. The first scene in this, we look at Bridget is um, meant to be the the quintessential single girl in England. Of course, it's ironic or interesting that an American actress is playing a Brit. And in the novel, you'll find out in the novel she is sort of at she's just sort of normal. She is normal, but what's so interesting about her is she's totally neurotic, like all of us. And so she obsesses over her weight. She thinks she's overweight. She's not overweight. But in the film, they have Renee Zellweger, who is um, very, very slender, gain all this weight to play this normal-sized person in... um, Bridget Jones diary so that, that's just a little fun fact that's I find is interesting so um in this first scene what we'll see I'm going to turn out the light if you can stay awake even while I keep talking in this first scene what we see is that Bridget on New Year's Day is going home to um her mother's uh, her mother's usual New Year's Day event which is n- the um okay but let me just um It's the... um, So this scene is the... Oops. Hold on just one sec. This scene is her mother's New Year's Day turkey curry buffet that she has to go to every year. And the film opens with her traveling from London out to the countryside to be with her parents on this day. And she says it's inevitable that her mother is going to set her up with someone. As a singleton in her thirties, so Hello Dad. Hello,
1: darling. How's it going? <coughs> I am just trying to fix you up the some of See <laughs> Human Rights marries a pretty nasty beast, apparently. Who? Didn't Tom. Maybe this time Mother got it right. Come on. Why don't we see if Mark is a good kid? <laughs>
0: Mark?
2: Maybe this was the mysterious Mr. Wright I'd been waiting my whole life to meet.
1: You remember, Bridget? <laughs> 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 <She's
2: coughs> no cleanse on, remember?
1: Uh, no, not at all.
2: Come and look at your gravy, Pam. I think it's going to need sieving. Of
1: course it doesn't need sieving? Just stir it, Una. Yes, of course. I'll be right there. Sorry. Lumpy gravy course. So?
2: So? you staying at your parents' for New Year? Yes.
1: You? Mm. Mm. Oh, no, 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 no. London. There a party last night, so I'm afraid I'm a bit hungover. Wish well, I could be lying with my head in the toilet like all normal people. <laughs> <laughs> New Year's resolution. Drink less. Oh, and quit smoking. Keep mm. <laughs> 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 New Year's resolutions. <laughs> and uh, (laughs) stop talking total nonsense to strangers. In fact, stop talking full stop. (laughs) Yes, well, perhaps it's time to eat. Hmm. Apparently, she lives
2: just round the corner from you.
1: Mother, I do not need a blind date, particularly not with some verbally incontinent spinster who smokes like a chimney, drinks like a fish, and dresses like a mother.
0: My favorite. <laughs> Isn't it awful and wonderful at the same time? Any, um,
2: any?
0: Did you hear the background music? Yeah, it is. T- tell us. A... Do you want to tell everyone so we all know? Um, you're just too
2: good to be true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're just too good to be true. Well, he was too good to be true because you know I would say that this is a perfect example of the law. Um, that she is basically confronted with this man. Finally, the setup is someone she might actually be interested in, this yearly setup. Um, this time, mom got it right. Um, and he essentially totally rejects her. She accidentally overhears what he's saying to his mother about her, you know, the verbally incontinent spinster. That is probably the worst thing you could say to a single woman in her 30s, you know. And then um, the. Um, and what is so interesting about this is that the law, God, God's law is a good thing, and yet to us, when we hear the ideal set forth from God directly, what we find is that um, we are emboldened, we, we want to obey it, we want to fulfill the law, we want to accomplish perfection according to God's demands. But as we go out to do that, we find eventually that as we do that, um, we fail. And we fail on our own because we're sinful, we're imperfect, and we don't keep the law. Um, And that even the motivation to keep it from the beginning is out of the desire to be be, um, merit, to have merit on our own, to be liked, um, to be um, accepted. um, And that is actually fear based motivation. That would cause us to try to keep um, to keep the law, to fulfill the demands, to meet the ideal. And the ideal um, for the single woman in her 30s is whatever it takes to catch the man. And there she is; she's just failed to catch even the man with the reindeer jumper. (laughs) (laughs) And what you'll see in the movie, for those of you who've seen it, and if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, we're going to see a little bit more and you'll learn probably too much about it, but um, it's still worth seeing, that she goes on then to frantically and neurotically try to live up to the ideal of a woman who's got it together, who doesn't drink, who doesn't smoke, who doesn't overeat who um, does constructive things with her time, who's intelligent and has interesting things to say, who, um, who dresses well for a big party like we're going to see. And this is um, a, a, an example of her utter failure. Now there are some, a little bit of saucy words in this one, but not, no official swears. She, is, she works for a publishing firm, and this is a book launch.
1: There he is. Oi! Hey. Oi! Hey. Sorry, the uh, mic's not wor- working. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the launch of Kafka's Motorbike, the greatest book of our time. Obviously, except for your books, Mr. Rushty, which are also very good. That's...
2: that's... And Lord Archer. yours <laughs> aren't bad either. <laughs> anyway, uh, what I mean is, uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming to the launch of one of the top 30 <laughs> books of our time.
1: Anyway... At least, and here to introduce it properly, is uh, the man we all call
0: uh, <coughs> That's what Mr. she calls him in her
1: head. Mr.
0: <laughs> uh, because that is his name. <laughs> Isn't that great? That is a perfect example of one of her, we find it endearing because it's in the extreme and it makes our own awkwardness and public embarrassment at times, and I can attest to this, feel so much lesser than what she's doing up there. And her ability to publicly embarrass herself just grows exponentially throughout the film. And so it actually escalates, and what we'll see is that, and I guess this would be the downward swing of the parabola, in um in the very low point of the movie, she has gotten a new job working for public television, which is a terrible idea um and she has an opportunity to interview um a fire a fire station and they want her to slide down the fireman's pole in a skirt because it's that kind of show, and the camera angle's all wrong and it's the most it's the worst thing I will not show this, but women you can imagine the worst thing you could possibly ever want to have happen to. You just broadcast all over the country and so after that public humiliation and embarrassment then she has this dinner party Oh, whoops, sorry Oh God,
2: I'm having dinner with Magda and Jeremy the only thing worse than smug married couple
1: Lots of smug married couples Right, everyone, kisses is Bridget Bridge, this is Hugo and Jane, and obviously Hello. you know Cosmo and
2: Swamy. Hi, Bridge.
1: This is Alistair and Henrietta, Hello. Julia and Michael, hey. Joanne and Paul, and marriage. Jeremy's partners from Chambers, this is
0: Natasha Glenville and Mark Darcy. Hi there. Hello. Not in your bunny girl outfit bit today. No. Oh. That was another public humiliation oh. moment. It was on very special occasions. <laughs> right, please you sit yourself down.
2: Hey, Bridge. How's your love life? Oh. Still going out without publishing,
1: shall
2: we? Uh, n- no,
1: no. no. Never dip your nib in the office ink. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> you really ought to hurry
1: up and get sprogged up, you know, old girl. Times are running out. Tick tock. Yes,
2: yes. Uh, tell me, is it one in four marriages that ends in divorce now, or one in three?
1: <laughs> one in three. Seriously, that office is full of single girls in their 30s. Fine physical specimens, but they just can't seem to hold down a Is yeah, Why is it there are
0: so many unmarried women in their 30s
1: these days? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> I suppose it doesn't help that underneath our clothes, our entire bodies are covered in scales. <laughs>
0: so you and can uh, you can see um she undergoes that dinner party right after the worst public humiliation she has ever experienced. And now for um the moment, we're now at the bottom of the parabola. She has publicly humiliated herself to the utmost, and now she's um she's had to go to this dinner party where it, in some ways the thing that is her most sensitive spot, the fact that she's a 30-year-old single woman is really kind of rubbed in her face. She's leaving early. Doesn't say how she extricated herself. But then we see an interaction between her and Colin Firth's character, Mark Darcy. And essentially what we had seen was that he had a big no to her, a big capital N-O. There was no way he was going to date Or go on a blind date with this woman, and now we see, um, you know, two thirds of the way into the movie, what he thinks about her.
1: I very much enjoyed your Lewisham fire report, by the way. Thank Thank you.
2: Didn't work out with Daniel Cleveland? No, it didn't.
1: I'm delighted to hear it.
2: Look, are you and Cosmo in this together? I mean, you seem to go out of your way to try to make me feel like a
1: complete idiot every time I see you. And you really needn't bother. I already feel like an idiot most of the time, anyway. With or without. be my taxi good night look um, I'm sorry if I've been not I don't think you're an idiot at all I And mean, there are elements of the ridiculous about you <laughs> and are pretty interesting and, and you really are an appallingly bad public speaker and um, you tend to let whatever is in your head come out of your mouth without much consideration of the consequences I realized that when I met you at the turkey curry buffet, that I was unforgivably rude, and wearing a reindeer jumper that my mother had given him the day before. But the thing is, um, what I'm trying to say very inarticulately, is that, um, in fact, perhaps
2: despite appearances, I like you very
1: much. Uh, apart from the smoking, and the drinking, and the vulgar mother, and the verbal diary. No, I like you very much. Just as you
0: are. Oh gosh, make it stop. So, well, we see he likes her very much, just as she is. Does that sound familiar? I can only help but think of that great old gospel hymn, "Just as I am." We come to God just as we are. He loves us just as He are, as we are. Excuse me. And it is just as we are that He then sends His own Son to die for us. That it really is what Romans 5:8 says: that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we are weak, while we are maybe not verbally incontinent or um, you know all of those other things that he says about Bridget that are true, he looks at her, he sees her, he knows her, and he still likes her. And it is that, um, that is totally outside of her. It is that um, love that comes from completely outside of her that flips her story at this low point, this lowest point in her story. And that is true for us too, that God's love for us in Jesus Christ, that um, forgiveness and then that righteousness that He imputes to us through His Son, Jesus. He looks at us in our sin, in our weakness, and He says, I love you, and even I like you, and I sent my son to die for you. Thanks be to God.